Welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast, your home for stories, inspiration, and advice from athletes over 40. I'm your host, Robin Leggett. I'm a later in life athlete who became a roller derby skater in my 30s and a runner and obstacle racer in my 40s. Now I'm an athletic aging coach who helps women over 40 experience the massive life benefits that come with exploring your athletic potential at any age and any fitness background. If that fires you up, keep listening. Let's do this. Seasoned athletes, let's talk injuries. We all get them. If you participate in a sport or live an active lifestyle, injuries happen. Pain happens. But when this happens, have you ever stopped to think that there may be something bigger at play than just moving the wrong way or overtraining or overreaching? Could there be a psychological or emotional event that prompted this injury? Did you know this was even a thing? Today's guest knows all about this. Her name is Brenda Schultz McCarthy, and she's a former professional tennis player and two-time Olympian who reached a career high ranking of number nine in the world. She retired from tennis in 1999 after suffering from a back injury. But what led to that injury and how she recovered from it, that's where things get interesting especially as it led her to come out of retirement six years later and earn a world record for her 130 mile per hour serve. Brenda and her husband, Sean, have taken what they've learned about the mental and emotional connection to athletic performance to help young tennis players launch their careers, access college scholarships, overcome injuries, and beat addictions. Through their TEDS Foundation, which stands for Think, Eat, Do, Serve, they educate and empower children and their families to become whole by leading a holistic lifestyle. So without further ado, let's get to know Brenda Schultz-McCarthy. Hi, Brenda. Are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today? I'm definitely going to give it my best shot. (laughs) Let's do this. So very first question is the question I ask all of my guests, and that is, what is your age at this moment in time? It's 49, but in the end of this month, it will be 50, 28 December. <laughs> oh, you're very close. You're very close. The big very five. close. You know, what I, I know. I love, what I love about the people I've interviewed on the show, maybe you get this a little bit, but um, I interview a lot of age group athletes on the show. And so it's the only population on this planet, especially with women that get excited about getting older because you're now the youngest in a new age group. So I've, I've had a few people turning 50 and they're like, I'm about to turn 50 and I can't wait. Yeah. And it really is the only place that women will say that. So, it's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I like that. All right. Well, let's go back in time. I want to go back to the very beginning with you. What did your early athletic life look like? Did you play sports growing up? Yeah. Both of my parents, my, my dad was very good in soccer and, uh, I think his thing was that his dad didn't want to let him be professional soccer player. And he said, no, you got to take care of your family. You got to make money and soccer is not paying money. At that time, it wasn't. As you now know, you know, being from Holland, he probably could have made a lot of money. But at that time, he chose for safety and went in the army and, and got a job at the airport in, in Schiphol in, in Amsterdam and was a weather forecaster. And I think when I came along and he was first, he's like, gosh, why I have two girls, me and my sister. I I wanted two boys. I wanted soccer players. And he was really obsessed with soccer. We always had to be quiet when soccer came on. And, you know, (laughs) one TV, two stations in Holland. And uh, so 
was a lot of soccer. And then one friend of him in work said, Jan, why don't you have your girls play tennis? It's a great sport. We're starting a tennis club in Amsterdam for the people from the KLM. It was the, at the airport was the, the KLM flight. They, the state sponsor? like the, Yeah, they, they started this club for all the people that were either pilots or working for KLM. They could join this, this club, this tennis club. And it, it's not like America that you have all these other sports, golf or tennis. It was really tennis. It had 10 tennis courts and a wall to hit tennis balls against. <laughs> that's you know, it. So that's all you're doing. That's there. it. Yeah. If, if you in Holland, it's very, um, you know, when you go to the tennis club, you play tennis. If you go to the soccer club, you play soccer. If you go to the swim club, it's swimming. So it's not like in America when you have the country clubs and there's all these other things that you can do. So me as being an athlete, I mean, they took me skiing since I was four years old. So my dad definitely being the athlete as he was, any spare time that he had when he wasn't doing his job, he would take me throwing a ball, kicking a soccer ball, whatever it was. And then when we, when I was eight, that happened that he rolled us into the tennis club and me and my sister, my sister's five years older. So she was a little later starter because she was 13, but me at eight was the perfect time to really have a future in, in this sport and on a very young age, I think I was nine, mainly that whole year from eight to nine, I hit against the wall because at this club, you had to be nine to be able to be on the tennis court. Oh, wow. So I know. I you know. were just in the corner hitting the ball against the wall for a year. I was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was literally like my dad said, if you get to 10, you get an ice cream, you know, if you get to 20, you get another ice cream. <laughs> so, Well, you know, ice cream is a really powerful motivator for an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> it is for me it definitely was yes. so but yeah when I turned nine and, and I they asked me to play a couple tournaments literally I could hit the ball a lot of times against the wall but I never really played much on the tennis court and then my dad showed me he's like okay this is how you serve and that was the one thing that I copied him and that was his best stroke in the tennis game because all the other were a little bit iffy but his serve was very good and he always had a good throw um, so he taught me that surf and, um, yeah, right there, they already said, oh, she's going to be so good. So I think one thing rolled to the other and at 10 years old, I won the Dutch championships under 12 and it was, you go to the European championships and it, it's just a snowball that from young age, they're already saying, you've got to be a professional tennis player. And little, I knew it, it all happened. It all came through, but it's just very young that that already was like I have two boys now they're nine and 11 and god knows what they're gonna do <laughs> right it's it fascinates me when people know and commit like parents know and commit to having their child go on a professional sports path there's a lot of dedication on both you know your part as a child mm -hmm. and your dad's part to right send you down that path in a way that's going to lead you to becoming a professional tennis player. Yeah, totally. Like my dad had to take the bus to work so my mom could have the car and drive us to practices. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of dedication. Yeah. Yeah. So like when you were a child, how many hours a day, a week were you putting into tennis? Now it's it, like when I was nine years old, I probably played around three times a week uh, with a group. And maybe I had one private of just a very nice gentleman who said, you know, I really like your ability and, and I help you out for an hour a week. And it, I think it was free because my parents didn't have the funds to, to start paying for private lessons and things like that. So I rode my bike to, to the neighbor 
who tennis courts, not to the club exit my dad was a member of, but this was a closer club that I could ride my bike 10 minutes and I would go three times a week with these people. And then at 10 years old, when I won that Dutch championships, then suddenly in Holland, they started this tennis school in the south of Holland. And it was like this new thing. So in America, there was already a lot of tennis schools. You had voluntary, a lot of people sending their kids away to become very good in tennis. In Holland, that was kind of a new thing. And they asked me because I was the best in my age group if I wanted to join this, this tennis academy. And that meant that I was going to be away from home uh, only a home for the weekends. So I was five days at this, at this tennis academy and I would go to regular school, but I would play tennis every day from like four to seven. So I'd go to school from eight till three. And then, and then I actually stayed in housing by, by people that their little girl was also in this tennis academy. And I didn't like school too much. The, the school that I was in, the kids were like jealous and oh, you have to go to tennis practice again. And so really because of the school, I said to my parents, I said, listen, you know, then you don't have to figure out who's going to bring me to practice. Let me try this. And now my boys there, especially my 11 year old, I was like, man, I did this when I was 11 years old. I couldn't even stand the, the, the thought of having you leave for, you know, all this amount of time. And he's like, mom, are you crazy? You know, right. And I said, it must I, be so I, strange for them being the age you were and hearing these right. stories. And it's just, it's so different for them or it's just different now. And it, it's yeah. like a whole nother world, right? Yes, it, it, it was. And, and I remember my mom dropping me off at the train station because I had to take the train for like two hours and she was pretty much crying. I was crying like, I got to do this. I know I have to do this, but it's really hard, you know, to, to be a, a pretty much five days away from home and then coming home on the weekends. So going through that, I did that for a year. And then, uh, and then I would go in Holland, you go to high school at 12. So it's not like in America, like you're 14, but you switch from elementary to high school. And the high school that I was going to go to was my sister was going there too. And she said, this is a great school. Kids are different. And it was true. I was, I was now 12 getting 13 because I'm, my birthday is late in the year in December. So I was, you know, a little older and it was true. I had a great time in school. I still had to every day because now I'm practicing almost every day right after school I had to take the bus and the train to get to Amsterdam we lived about half an hour from Amsterdam and yeah I was definitely on a young age such a commitment if I look back now seeing my boys growing up it's almost like because I did that commitment I'm very slow with them it's like <laughs> yeah it involved a lot of sacrifice for you at a, yeah, at a pivotal they, time in your life I know it's hilarious. They fish, they go to the skate park, they go to the trampoline park, they play baseball and like a regular, not like travelers. And right, right. They just, they're, they're active and they have fun, but it's not like, yeah. like all right, you got to do four hours of trampoline practice. Yeah, no. The best of the world of trampoline. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's a whole different thing. Yeah. But when you were, when you were that age, you know, like you wanted it bad enough to do the work, right? Or I think I, I, I disliked school very much. <laughs> I mean, whenever my mom would say, okay, you can do your homework or I'll do it for you or your sister will do it for you. But if you don't want to go to practice, then you got to do it yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll go play tennis because <laughs> I really don't want to do it. Got you homework. out of the stuff you didn't like. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know exactly. So that that was a good good thing, and and yeah, being talented, having certain talents in tennis, it made me win a lot. But definitely because it's a it's an individual sport, but also. It was hard to have friends sometimes because you play against all these different people, but you're always at some point will play against them. So it's hard to play against your friends, especially at especially when you end up like at a higher and higher level. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, it gets it just the stakes are higher. Yeah, so it's it it became tougher every time, and uh, luckily I had my sister. It was very nice, even that she didn't become as high ranked as me she just became still top 10 in holland in her under 18 and tried a little bit on the tour but we played a lot of doubles together and we played club matches together and uh i wouldn't have never made it this far without her you know just sometimes when i would lose a match she's like no you're made for this you can do it very positive to to always be there for me and always talk me up and giving me that positive feedback that i could do it so that was that was very important it's nice to have someone in your corner who gets yeah. what you're gets I think, what you're doing. I think you can see it with like a Serena and Venus, you know, that you can see that they have each other. And yes. a lot of those stop, even that you don't always see like Monica Salas had a brother that she played with a lot, but the brother was not that good, but she did have him in her corner. Jennifer Capriati had a brother that was always playing tennis with him. Mary Pierce had a brother that she always played tennis with. So a lot of those players, you can see that they have a family member, younger, like kind of like them, that they play with. Even Chris Everett at the time, what I can see now, her her brother runs her academy program here in uh, Palm Beach. And uh, so she always, it, it helps, you know, to have somebody, because like I said, it's so, everybody wants to beat each other. So it's yeah. not like a team sport. And I enjoy that now with the boys that they have friends and they, you know, they go fishing together. They go in a skate park and they're teaching each other kind of how to do it. There's not even a teacher there, but it's like, oh, you got to do this trick like this. And they're so, everybody's so nice to each other. And my oldest one, he likes baseball and to see the team and to see the coach. And it's, it, it's something to say about the team, team sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I never knew about the siblings. You know, we all know about Serena and Venus, but I didn't know about any of these other siblings that, you know, they play together, they support each other, but one always eclipsed the other at right. some point. One rose to the top and the other ended up in a support role. But it's right. it's so interesting and it's so nice to see that they bond, they support each other. You know, whoever is the one rising to the top, the other one is helping them get there. Right. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, because also I played doubles a lot with Gabriela Sabatini and her brother Oswaldo. I mean, he did not leave her side. Wow. And he was not even a tennis player, but he was more the type of person he she would work out with. He was very into working out and being fit. So on the tennis court, she had coaches and played tennis. But then afterwards, he was always there by her side. So... They were very close to, yeah. It's it's the one person who really gets you and gets what you're going through probably more than anybody could, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I really like that. That's, that's I just like, I like learning new things about yeah. that, that exist in the world that nobody knew about. And it's like in the world of professional tennis, you know, find a star and you'll probably find a sibling somewhere supporting them, probably not too far away. No, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I like that. So let's talk about your pro career. Um, you 
you had a career ranking high of number nine in the world. So not too shabby. Mm -hmm. Um, and you became, you know, you talked in the very beginning about your serve, about how your, your dad taught you to serve. Cause that was the thing he knew how to do. Right. <laughs> you became known for your serve. Right. Can you tell me about that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it did take on a young age already when I couldn't go on the court and I was hitting against the wall. What I did do when everybody was done playing, a lot of people in Holland, there's like a little restaurant that people go have a beer or have a drink afterwards. And I would go then on the court when everybody was done and I would hit surfs. So on a young age, I was hitting these buckets of surfs and I, I definitely had talent for it, but looking back, you know, it did help to, to, to hit all those serves, I'm sure. And then there was a lot that I had to learn. My toss was a little off and little things, but I was, def I was definitely born with a fast arm. You know, it's like any Roddick or whatever. I mean, they're not, you don't have to be necessarily super strong. If you have a fast muscle, that's kind of what does it. And then obviously I'm 6'3". The height helps because you get the nice angle. So... With a lot of work, it became for a while the fastest serve in the world was on a 30 miles an hour. What was um, through my whole career, it was like 115 miles an hour is the world record and then 121 and then 123. And uh, I'm sure we'll get in the interview that I got hurt my back and, uh, you know, and then I came back at the 37. Mm -hmm. I hit the 130 miles an hour serve. Yeah. But <laughs> so well, let's talk about that. But First of all, were you, were you always chasing that record? Was that something that was on your radar or was it just something that was happening? It was just something that was happening because especially in the beginning of my career, the fast, the clocks and everything was not a big deal. It was not even clocked. It was just in the end of my career that suddenly people start clocking it and they start making a big deal out of the speed. And it was funny because a lot of my aces were actually less speed so you you get somebody so you hit it hard and then the person will back up and then the ace will be more like a slider like in baseball you know and you hit away from the person and sometimes with less speed an ace just to clarify oh, yeah. an ace is <laughs> an ace is that the person your opponent does not touch the ball at all got so, it I, I thought that's what it was but i wanted to make sure so yeah, yeah, yeah sometimes that fast serve they have the ability to back up and and be ready for it but right and then but a slower serve you can outsmart them you can hit yeah. it to the other side and make it so, hit it to a point where they can't get it right <laughs> got it i'm learning tennis i played yeah. i played you know in in school i played a little tennis but it was not my sport i'm yeah. five foot one so i do not have that height advantage for the serve no 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 <laughs> i know I'm, i was actually <laughs> coaching an american girl lauren davis and she's five one and she made it to 25 in the world Right now, she's okay. back to like 50 or something. But still, yeah. In tennis, that's the beauty of it, though. I mean, for me, my serve was very helpful to be tall. But mm -hmm. if you're not tall, then you have different strength. Like I would play right. all the time against Arantxa Sanchez. We played each other many, many times. And she's, I don't know how tall she exactly is, but like 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, not, not very tall. And yeah, it's tennis is just a great sport that it doesn't matter what height you are, you can still be very successful playing it. So that's kind of nice. It can play to a lot of different strengths. Yeah, it can be fast. It can be, yeah. Yeah, you can get low. You can, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. All right. So retirement, you, you, why did you end up retiring? When did, when did you end up retiring? How long had you been playing professionally before you retired? Right. I started playing professionally when in 1986. So I was 16. And then 
about uh, two years later, when I was about 18, I was about 30 in the world. It took me two years to, to kind of get from 1500 ranking to like 30. So it went, everything went pretty fast. And then, and you're lucky, you know, you get, you get, you get through some matches that you could have lost and you somehow pulled through. And because I look back and I see it, this, this tournaments that in one tournament, for example, it's called a lucky loser. So you can lose in the last round of qualifying, but if your ranking is high enough and somebody gets sick in the main draw, you can still get in. And in this one tournament it was a pretty big tournament. I lost in the last round of qualifying and this girl got sick and I got in somehow as a lucky loser. And I got to the finals of the tournament. So this kind of propelled... you were a lucky loser. <laughs> yeah. Very. So, so it went from 150 to like 80 in the world. And if I would have, if that girl wouldn't have got sick, I would still be 150 in the world, you know? So, I mean, those lucky breaks happen. Right. Combination of skill and luck throughout, throughout everything. Yeah, totally. So I made it to 30 in the world, but then a lot of people thought that I should have been higher. Like when I got to 30 in the world, they're like, Brenda was her talent, was her athletic ability, you know, serve should be higher than that. And uh, I kind of got stuck from 18 till 24 at that 30 in the world. What's nothing wrong with, I mean, 30 in the world, you know, you're in every main draw, you're in every tournament that there is. Yeah, that's because not, that's that's about 30, 30 in the world when you went from 1500 is is not too shabby. Right. It's kind of <laughs> like every tournament will have a minimum of 32 players. Then when you play the okay. Grand Slam, you have like 128 players. But when you're top 32, you get into every top tournament. But in those tournaments, when you're not seeded, you can play the top players in the first round. So at that time, in my time, it was like Steffi Graf, Monica Seles, Gabriela Sabatini, Anna Fota, so right. that Arancha Sancha, that whole group. The legends of the 80s and 90s. Right? Legends of the 80s and 90s. So I would play those people first round, first or second round every time. And I was close. It wasn't that I was low losing all and all. It was like seven, five and a third, very close matches. And then I met my husband when I was 24. And he was a football player, not professional, played for the University of Cincinnati College football. In football, they get filmed a lot. So there's a lot of filming going on. And when he came in my life, the first thing he said was like, yeah, I asked him, you know, I said, what do you thought about the match? And he's like, yeah, you were a little straight up. I think he should be lower when I looked at those other people. I don't know that much about tennis, but as an athlete, I think you were a little bit too, too high up. So I said, really? really you know and he said but have you been filmed lately and I said not really so he said ah so he right away went to the Sony store and got this big cameras at the time you know this is uh-huh. what is it 1994 right. and uh, we don't he's have our little in, iPhones he's the guy in the crowd with like the giant camera, giant camera everything. <laughs> and he would just say afterwards after every practice or match you know he said here watch it and I joke around, I said, we would not be married right now if he wouldn't have bought that camera, you know, because he, he made your career. It's so, like, it's just something that people weren't doing in tennis, right? Like, No, it was weird. Like, I don't know, it's almost like the coaches felt they were too good. They said, I, I can see what's going on. And till this day, when I'm coaching all these kids right now, 
every time I take my phone, I stand behind in my iPad and I slow it down. They're like, Oh really? My arm is there. My, you know, I'm, you guys were pioneers. Yeah, definitely. You're pioneers in, in, in using film in tennis. In tennis, because he said, I mean, as a football player, he said, I watch more film than I played football. So for him, it was, yep. it was nothing new, you know, definitely. But in the tennis world, it definitely helped me tremendously. I would like, oh, man, I'm straight up. or oh, I'm kind of slow in that first step. And it, it saved us a lot of conversations because he would just show me and I knew how to correct myself when I watched right. it. So that went very well. So in that year, and there was different things, like I didn't, sometimes I didn't believe in myself and, enough. So he would say, uh, have you ever listened to Napoleon Hill or have you ever listened to Anthony Robbins? And I was like, no, not really. They told me to go to sports psychology, but I'm not crazy. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> this is so interesting. It's, I, I just keep going, but this is so interesting that like these, these, these things that are taken as normal now oh, in, totally. in sports and it's like, and he just, because he had access to it in the, these football programs, it's like, try this thing. And you're like, this is what, right. this is outrageous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he actually was at, at the time when I met him, he, he was a stockbroker now. I mean, he was same age as me. So he was 24, I was 24. So he was already kind of done with his football career, but the, the Anthony Robbins things that came more from a stockbroker. Like you have to believe oh, in yeah. yourself and you have to read this and rah, you know, yeah. and, lots and, of personal development in that industry. Right? Exactly. So that's where that kind of came from. And so, you know, then I was tall at six, three, he's six, five. So I finally, he said, come on, wear a dress, walk up straight. You know, I said, ah, they don't wear, they don't make dresses in my size. You know, it's all for shorter people. He's like, oh, how are we going shopping? So there was a lot of things that made me feel like a, a tall woman, but proud of my height because I could be walking straight and I didn't have to bend down or anything for you know, to make somebody more comfortable. And I'm the type of person that want to make feel everybody comfortable, right? So mm -hmm. with him, it was very nice to have somebody by your side, but he, he had still a very busy job. Like he, as being a stockbroker, you don't get many holidays. And for me as a tennis player, I was traveling 40 weeks out of the year. So um, my ranking went up in one year's time, pretty much to top 10. It was like from 24 to 25, I think in 1995, I had my highest ranking. But what happened was we, we were we were getting married in 1995. And two weeks before my wedding, my, my mom came to America to, to have my wedding dress and, and to see if it fit because I was traveling all over the world. And her, her and my sister were doing everything to, to arrange the wedding in Holland. And when she traveled back, she got an aneurysm. She said, I feel a little bit of a headache and went to the hospital. And literally three days later, it was over. So I was on the height of my life, like the happiest person in the world. I have the man that I dreamt of, right? I have the highest or almost the highest ranking at that point. It was like 11, 12. And I was actually in the finals of this tournament when, when this lady in the hospital next to my mom said, uh, you better come down here. This is not something to, to mess around with. So I'm very happy that I defaulted the next match, went home, was be able to say goodbye. And, um, but it was really difficult to continue because right after that, that was in April. We got married April 8th, so somewhere end of March. In May is the French Open. 
So it was really difficult to then suddenly play all these clay court tournaments in Berlin, Rome, and then the French. So by the time I got to the French, I didn't win a round. And I got to the French Open. I said to my husband, I called him. I said, listen, you either come to me or I come to you. It's, it's just I can't handle this hotel rooms. I see her. I see her in the crowd. It's just not working. I was very close to my mom because, like I said, you know, she did have to do a lot of sacrifices in order for me to make it. And um, especially because I was doing so well. First of all, I mean, I don't know how I got through the wedding. That was luckily the last thing she said was like, I want you to get married. Sean is going to take over where I left off. And, and Sean is very positive, always finds ways. My mom was very positive, always found a way, you know, like my dad was more, I got the, the athletic ability from him. I have the same body and same mm -hmm. talents that way, but he's sometimes a little bit more on the negative side. And my mom was definitely the positive person in my life. So Sean was very similar in that way, always try to find solutions, whatever was wrong. So she did that and I, we, we, kept it going and did it but then afterwards it was almost kind of I went through this that the time went just by but I wasn't there and then when I got back on the court you know everything hit me and especially when I was doing well first five rounds I, first five tournaments afterwards I lost first round but then uh, Sean came and he said listen I can always be a stockbroker but you cannot always be a tennis player that's life is not that long to do that so he said, I'm come to you. So he right away took a plane to the French Open, told his boss, he's like, listen, I got to do this. I don't know if I'm quitting, but let me just do this right now so she can play the French Open and hopefully get through the first round. So he came and, uh, and I remember like I was match point. That means like you're surfing. I was surfing for the match. So you have one more point to win mm -hmm. to win the match. And, uh, and I, I start crying because I wanted my mom to be there. And so when I was surfing, he saw it and he's like, just hit your surf, you know, hit it. <laughs> then the ball won't come back. Right. And that ace that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So I did just hit it as hard as I could. And, and I hit a tough surf. It didn't come back. And with tears in my eyes, I won the first round finally. And then the next round was on the center court. It was a tough round. It was a, it was a seated player, Uncle Huber from Germany. But anyway, I got over that hump that at least won the first round. Right. So, so that was a big deal. And then the other thing, what I wasn't brought up, my dad wasn't uh, religious. He didn't really believe in anything. Um, so in his mind, my mom was six feet under and it was done. So mm -hmm. Sean was brought up Catholic and, and believed in God. And when he came, he just totally start talking a whole different language than my dad would you know on the phone or something if i called him so he was like listen she's still there she did all these things but the last thing she wants to see is after she did all that for you to you know to to not do anything with it you're, you're here you're on the top of your career you, you got to keep going forward you know that's what she would have wanted and i mean you know so he he went that whole different way and that helped me tremendously kind of pushing through and realizing that she was still there um and and then that was the first time in my life that the next tournament would be Wimbledon and that's what when I got to the quarterfinals so that's that was the highest that I ever got in a tournament so it could have gone completely different if Sean would have said now you know I'm staying in my job or whatever right. but he 
he was strong enough to say against my dad's things and his parents because he, they were like no don't quit your job you know i mean she'll be and he's like no no i really feel i gotta do this and he did that and that helped me a lot so then from that yeah. moment on we, we traveled together the only thing was that there was still during that time those next coming years even that i had the highest ranking and even that i made it to the top 10 um outsiders probably wouldn't have known but sean knew that it was harder for me to sometimes stay in the practice and i still missed my mom a lot and i never really because the sport i never really had time to really grief i guess you call it yeah. grief. i mean it was so fast paced you had to go right back into the tournaments okay? yeah just pretty much like uh, like queen would sing you know like the show must go on and yeah. and and it really feels that way because there's 20,000 people screaming and they're like you know if you miss a shot are you an amateur or professional I mean they're they're right. tough you know they don't and know what's going on in your life no like no I actually <laughs> had one reporter he was a very famous radio show uh, person in Holland and at one point when I lost all those first rounds he's like come on you're professional you got to move on and he was kind of tough on me and I said hey man you know, it's the stuff. And then five years later, he comes to me and he puts his excuses. He said, I am so sorry. My mom passed away last week. I don't know how you could have played. And I'm so sorry that I told you that. And, uh, and that's sometimes how it goes. You know, if you're not in yeah. the same, you never understand till it actually happens. Um, yeah. My coach at the time, my hitting partner coach, he didn't understand it. So we had to switch coaches and, you know, sometimes I just felt like hitting the balls over the fence for a couple of times, just get it out of my system and then I'll go again. So, right. But those are things that good coaches understand or I, I end up uh, getting together with a coach that um, that was same age as me, but his dad just passed away of MS. And he, he was a very good tennis player when he was young, 17, 18. And then his dad got sick of MS and he started using drugs and just very, yeah, sad. You know, he, he saw his dad, what was a very good tennis player too, and only in bed, couldn't come out of bed. And he first it was like in a wheelchair, then he couldn't come out of bed and watch his matches anymore. So he started using drugs. And then um, when I was at that point that I lost my mom and he lost his dad, we understood each other and he was still a great tennis player. So luckily he started traveling with me and my husband and that kind of saved me that at least he understood. Mm. And that, but then moving forward four years in 1999, when I hurt my back, um, I tripped over a line. I was playing in Hilton head on a clay court and sometimes the lines will stick up a little bit. And I thought I pulled my hamstring. And for a couple of months, they kept treating my hamstring. And then I got to Holland and this very good doctor from a soccer uh, that, that was for the soccer teams in Holland. He, he, he put a pillow underneath my back and said, do you feel your leg now? Pull my leg up. And I said, no, I don't feel anything. He's like, it's not a hamstring. It's coming from your back. <laughs> so I played for a while. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. <laughs> no. Treating perfectly good hamstrings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because every time I felt it, it was almost like a pop, but it was like a, a nerve, I guess, that went through mm. my hamstring. It's the sciatica, whatever. Sciatic. I was about to ask. It must be sciatic. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> So, but I, I was already doing uh, a lot of yoga. I was doing deep tissue massages, doing chiropractic, everything kind of 
holistically that I could do, but nothing was working. So I finally did have the surgery. And this is, like I said, in 1999. And so um, after the surgery, it was still not good. And I tried to come back in the French Open, actually play one tournament, but it, right away I hit a big serve and I was crooked again and it, it, it didn't feel good. So I had to make up my mind, you know, to, to stop. And obviously I'm still, I was kind of on the top of my game when, when, I, when that happened. I was still 14 or 13 in the world because I lost a lot of rounds because of, I was hurt. But I was on the top of my game. I would, you know, never would have stopped otherwise. So we were like, okay, now I'm 30 years old. What are we going to do? And Sean was still kind of, my husband was still kind of in the mode of like being there for me. He was being my manager because having the background of a stockbroker for Dean Witter, you know, he was kind of, he could do the deal. He could do that. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, work out with me. We played a lot of one-on-one basketball, but also helped me tremendously with my first step. And tennis is a lot of side to side. So it's, it's, it's not so much forward. Once in a while you get a drop shot. That means a really short one. But that was another thing that helped me a lot. We just played one-on-one and he would give me 15 points and we played to 21 and somehow he still won. So it's, uh. <laughs> you know, it got a little bit better with the crossover at the end. Did it help you to move in all four planes like that? It helped tremendously for my tennis game. But that being said, you know, so he was always like anything for you, right? So uh, at, that, at, at some point he said, okay, so now you're hurt. Now we're not going to play tennis. So what are we going to do? And so we went to, to Big Sky, Montana, just to kind of, I love the mountains. I love to ski. And at that time we were just hiking around. And this one, oh, there was a person there in Big Sky and he ran a camp and in the morning he played tennis and in the afternoon he would go horseback riding and rafting and doing all this fun stuff that I really liked. I'm kind of like that adventure person that likes paddle boarding and rafting and horseback riding. And I didn't get to do much of it because I always had to play tennis. And I, you know, you can't get hurt because you're playing tennis. So right. he asked me, he said, hey, can you help me out with the tennis clinic in the morning? And then in the afternoon, if you want to go with us and you want to go on the rafting trip, you can do that too. And I said, oh, that sounds good. So right after that week that I helped him out, I said to Sean, I said, I know what I want to do. I want to start this tennis camp for kids, but I want to have a real camp experience. So four hours a day is plenty of tennis. So you play two hours in the early morning, two hours in the later afternoon and the hot time of the day, because the camps are always in the summer and you can go paddle boarding at that time. When I first started the camp, there was no paddle boarding, it was more kayaking. Now yeah. we're paddle boarding in the lake and we go tubing, we go for mountain bikes. We, you know, just have a good old time. It sounds like so much fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> campfires and really that the kids, they get their tennis, they get their instruction, uh, very good instruction, but then they get the fun part of really feeling like they're in a summer camp. So we dove into that and just like I wanted to be a good tennis player, I wanted to have the best camp. And we did that for about five years. And then in 2005, Sean already was digging with, with certain things that were beyond the touch and feel things of holistic healing. Even that we were eating organic, we were doing all the other things. He still felt like some piece was missing because there was some kids that were helping. They were eating clean. They were doing the yoga. They were working out. And then suddenly after the first part of the tennis match, they would cramp. 
And there was no reason to, it had to be something mental. So he went to a couple of, a couple of seminars and then he came home one time and said, man, I found a missing link. And it was about releasing the stress in your body. Now we all have stress and there's good stress and there's bad stress. But obviously with my mom passing away, there was a lot of stress that I was holding on to even during those years that I kind of kept my ranking somewhere, but it was still very stressful. And me getting hurt with my back, we never really thought about that. We were just thinking right away, okay, I pulled the hamstring, I hurt my back, I tripped over the line, very physical thinking. And then when he went to the seminar, the gentleman said, did anything happen to her mentally that was very emotional, very stressful? And he said, nah, this, this happened, but it was really a couple of years before she actually hurt her back. He said, yeah, but that could be it. So then Sean started learning all these techniques about tapping. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's I've like, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And all this emotional clearing techniques. And for me, it, it worked. And he started doing that. And also the other kids in the program. Uh, that I at this point I have a little academy program I did the tennis camp and then in Florida I kept like eight kids and five kids staying in our house and homeschooling and doing the whole thing um, but but all those kids he helped the, the one parents were going through a divorce the other parents were their house was getting taken away and these kids had these problems that they get physical problems but before we would never like they would get a cramp in their calf so you start deep tissuing the calf you know like oh my gosh what's wrong and now sean said okay everything is fine with your parents you know the, the house is there imagine this do this and the kid's calf would be soft as as budding you know there would no more cramping wow. so we really start getting into that and at the same time they asked me in holland if i wanted to be the fed cup coach so you're probably familiar have you ever heard of davis cup in tennis, it's it's a team. You play for your country. Mm-hmm. So you, you get together and, and it's a lot of fun because, like I said, it's an individual sport. But that time you actually play for your country. So you have like four guys or four girls. Fed Cup is for the girls. Mm-hmm. Federation Cup. Mm-hmm. And they asked me if I wanted to coach that Dutch team. So these are the best young players, or the best, not young necessarily. They were young, they were 17, 18. <laughs> but it's the best players in Holland. And there's two singles and then the doubles match. So I said, ah, yeah, that, that's an honor because now I'm totally in the coaching route. I'm not playing anymore. So for me to be the, the coach of my country was, was a big deal. So I went there. At the same time, my back is feeling so much better. So I had to hit with the girls a little bit. And then they asked me to play a doubles match with this one girl against the two girls that were going to be playing in the Fed Cup. And me and this other girl beat them. So now the coach is like, hold on, you're not coaching. Can you play? Can you actually play? So that And this was, was five years after you stopped yeah, playing professionally? Yeah, this was when I was 35. Because 36, I went back on the tour. And at 35, this kind of happened. And just just people observing. It's like, oh, what? She's still, she's, she's, she's got it. Yeah, this guy was like, I don't know if you can play singles, but you can at least play doubles for the team. So it started off from playing doubles. Uh, and then this one girl got hurt. And then they said, can you play singles? And I was already playing some singles matches for the practice with these girls. And I was beating them, but I didn't want them not to play because at this point I'm 36 years old. You know, I'm like, I don't want this 17, 18 year old because she had an off day 
right. to take her spot. Yeah. take her spot. <laughs> so I figured, you know, they, the one girl was really good. She was 30 in the world. She was the sister of uh, Richard Krychek. Richard Krychek won, won Wimbledon. So this is Misha Krychek. And then the other girl that played for Holland, she was her ranking was more down. She might have been like 150 in the world. So uh, with the, the one girl that played number one single, she won. And then the other girl would lose. And then it's one all. And then me and Misha won the doubles. So the, there was it, it was kind of a, a tournament, this Fed Cup. So you play with 32 other countries. And so the first three rounds we won doing that. She won the singles. The other girl lost the singles and then won the doubles. So then we got to the quarters and suddenly this girl twists her ankle and the guy's like, can you play singles and doubles? So I said, sure, you know, and, and I played singles and doubles that day and the press was all over it. Like, you got to play again. You got to play on the tour. You know, we need another Dutch player. And so I'm like, okay, it's not that easy. You know, I got to, I have this camp and the kids count on me. Uh, during the summer it's yeah. like 10 weeks i built this up i've been doing this for five years You're like i got out of this i'm doing other stuff now uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and really the main reason why sean was trying to heal my back was really to have a family we wanted kids and we didn't want me not to have it naturally or or any complications instead of having kids when i'm 36 i do get triggered and you know I, I went back on the tour and it was really the main reason there was two things bothering me and I always felt like I should have done better in Wimbledon even that quarterfinals is, is nothing really bad but everybody always felt like I should have won it and um, it, it fit perfect with my game it's grass it's, it's fast serve coming in serving volley so that was kind of how at the end of my career my game was and that's why it was very fitting for 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 Wimbledon because that you play on grass um and then so that was one of the reasons and the other reasons when I start playing exhibitions so you know you know when you retire people start asking you to play exhibitions for for charities for all kind of different things and it was always like Brenda used to have the fastest serve in the world with 123 miles an hour and now Venus Williams have the fastest serve at 127 now, the longer I retired, the lower my serve went. So it went from 123, like, did you ever get over 100? You know, I mean, you, you get forgotten so fast. Right. right. You're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I can still <laughs> hit that serve. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons was that when I came back, it was definitely in the back of my mind that I wanted to break that record of Venus. So, so was, now you were now you were going for it. Oh, like totally. It was just sort of happening. But now yeah. you're like, I want this. Yeah. And, and even when I hit it in that particular match, it was in Cincinnati, where my husband is from. It's his hometown. And that's why I got the wild card in the tournament. Wild card means that your ranking is not quite there, but they give you a wild card because they say that you can handle the, the level. But, you know, I, I had to start over at 1500 in the world. So it, it took me a while. It took me two years to get back to 150, but that still doesn't get you into a tournament that only 32 people get in. Right. So they were nice enough to give me a wild card in the qualifying in Cincinnati. And I played and then I was actually losing. I was losing big time against this girl. I was down a set. In the second set, I'm down 5-1. So the other person has to only win one more game to win the match. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my coach. I had I didn't bring my coach a lot of times, but that was actually a bigger tournament. So I brought him and I looked up and he's like, 
go for your surf. You've got the speed gun here because it was on the big Senna court in Cincinnati. What's a big tournament. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I guess I can do that. I'm down. I mean, I'm losing, but I got know. nothing to lose. So may as well have a good time. Exactly. So I was <laughs> just, I, this thing. you know, I just stepped up and I, I didn't hit it that particular game, but I won my serve because I wasn't worried about the outcome. I was just kind of relaxed in a way. Isn't that interesting how that happens when the pressure, you remove the pressure and then you start performing really well. Yeah. I so, experienced that too. <laughs> the, the poor girl, the other girl, Julia Cohen, she was like, literally, it was like, you know, when you have like a, a fight with a bull in, in Spain, <laughs> you know, she was like, ah, <laughs> get out of the way. From the surf. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so then I got all the way back to like five, four. And finally, I just hit the surf and yeah, everybody was quiet. And I didn't even look at it because I'm so trained not to really look at the speed gun. You kind of like you need to be ready for the next ball, you know. Yeah. And then I was like, why, why is everybody so quiet? What's going on? And the referee in the chair was like, look at the speed gun. I'm like, Ooh, one oh, <laughs> Sure, <laughs> You know, I was like, wow. So then uh, I came off the court. I lost the match seven, six that set, because I think after all that happened, I probably start worrying about, you know, the match again. Um, so I lost the match, but I came off the court and all the press is all over me. Do you realize you hit the fastest serve? I mean, it's amazing, you know, 130 miles an hour and everything. So I was like, yeah, wow, this really has to click because I kind of lost the match. So I was like pissed that I lost. But then, right. you know. And uh, so it, they put it in the World Book of Records, but it was in the qualifying. And then about three years later, um, I don't know if it was Venus, you know, managers whoever they said yeah because of the wta suddenly didn't count it so it was on the world book of records and everything everything was count everything was official and then three years later they took it away from me they said Aww. yeah since it wasn't the qualifying and uh that's that's silly i know right <laughs> i mean come on so and i hit it later it was because the 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 circumstances, and I'm sure this is in other sports too, you know, that you run faster if it's like hot out and your muscles, you know, everything right. goes faster. And it's the same as a tennis ball when it's hot and in Cincinnati was in the summer. So it was hot and all the, all the stars lined up. Yeah, it was there's perfect. no wind. Yeah, it was yeah. perfect condition. So later on the next year, now my ranking is good enough to actually get to the qualifying I qualified this time and and got to the main draw and I got to the quarters and I play in the same court with the speed gun and I'm trying so hard to to hit that surf and it just wouldn't go faster than I it was still fast it's still like 127 or 128 right but still very uh, impressive yeah but I just couldn't because it was cold at night and I played like mm -hmm. nine o'clock at night so and I, I wasn't my ranking didn't go up because then I was 39 and I got my ranking up to like a hundred and uh, I was a little slower. I broke my foot after about two years. I went for a forehand, broke two bones in my foot. So that kind of staggered me a little bit. And even with Sean's magic and everything, I still broke nice. those stupid bones. So it probably healed faster than most people, but sure. you know, I never put a cast on or anything. And I walked backwards in the sand and I got back, but I missed some of the key indoor tournaments that was good for my, for my playing. So at 39, my sister calls me and now she had to be a little different part of my body. So, uh, you know, at 16, she's like, you're made for it. You got to do this. 
But at 39, she said, Brad, yeah, it's tough love, tough love time. Yeah, she was like, listen, yeah. you, you, you want two kids. You're 39 years old. And I was like, hey, my mom had me at 48 and had you at 43. But so she, she talked to me. She said, you know, just start trying. I mean, you know, you, you might not get pregnant right away now, literally two months later. <laughs> right, right. So, but, but I, I imagine it's, it's, you know, the first time you walked away, it was a little, a little more obvious you were injured. Right. But it can be when you're, when your body is not telling you obviously clearly to walk away, it can be really hard to right. make that decision on your own. Uh, the second time I just got nauseous and I realized that was, <laughs> was pregnant. So, and again, it had to be, it, it had, had to be to an be. outside <laughs> circumstance, but yeah. it was your sister. That's like, don't wait. I think you I would know? have played till I was 50 if it wasn't about right. anything. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, we're going to get back to, you know, what you're doing currently. Like if you've, you know, if you still play currently, but I want to talk about your foundation. Um, I want to kind of take a, take a step in a different direction. So, um, in addition to your competitive endeavors, you, you've dedicated your life to helping others. You've talked about it with the camps, with the coaching, with the people you've brought into your home. Um, you currently run a foundation called the Ted's foundation. Is that, is that's that correct. Insane? Yeah. That's T E D S from think, eat, do serve yourself and others. Okay. So, uh, what led you to start the foundation and what's the primary purpose of it? Now, mainly it happened when, when Sean, when my husband did that healing and, and, and that really worked. So we wanted to, to give other people that, that advice you know and and it was a tennis camp and we helped a lot of tennis kids and it was kind of interesting how when i ran the tennis kids and most of the kids were from eight till 17 and then they go to college or whatever so then they don't go to summer camp anymore but the amount of medicine that were prescribed you know that they have to give the nurse because when you have a camp you have to have a nurse on the site and i was like you my thing or not I was like, you, you worried about a forehand and a backhand while your kid is taking these drugs that really you should be more worried about, right? So mm-hmm. we had a lot of those kids. And then when Sean, when we start getting more and more uh, helping, uh, not only athletes, in the beginning was mainly athletes. They were hurt. My shoulder hurts, my wrist hurts, whatever, you know, we did the energy healing and we taught them how to live because I was living a very clean life in a way of food wise, in a way of working out. I did pretty much the right things except the emotional healing. So when Sean learned those emotional healing techniques, um, I did the other things right. So it clicked real quick, I think. But what we realized that for some people, it, it would feel better, but then it would come back and it wouldn't hold as long. Um, it also helped when people believed in something that they couldn't touch and feel. So when people were a little bit more in touch with God or something that they could believe in, because if you don't believe in anything, it's almost kind of hard when Sean starts closing his eyes and saying, okay, let me release this and doing all these things. They're like, what the heck is going on? You know? Yeah. What's this weird, like Uh, metaphysical. (laughs) Right. So we, we really felt that the people that were eating clean and doing all the other workouts already, that then the emotional stress techniques really worked. Um, if somebody after Sean would do all the clearing and then they would go to Kentucky fried chicken and have some nice fried, you know, and, and put right. all this inflammation back in their body. He even right. now we even realize when people do eat really bad or just 
you know, got some bad news that they need shoulder surgery or got all these things and they get drunk or do certain, there's all these bad things in their body and he goes to heal them. Sometimes they, it's called a Hersheimer effect. And he had happened that this one kid, he played college tennis, you know, and they told him, yeah, you're done. You have to, and he got drunk the night before he got to Sean and Sean is doing all these things on his shoulder and he suddenly faints in his arms. I mean, he just went, woof. And, and me and George, his other teammates, he's like, they thought we saw it all, you know, <laughs> what the heck? Right. And this then, yeah. And, and then the kid comes through. He's like, give me some apis. Give me some of this little white balls. It's like homeopathic uh, things. And he said, he'll be fine. So the kid is fine. First thing Sean asked, we are still kind of like, everything okay? And yeah. Sean is like, how does your shoulder feel now? And the kid is like, huh? shoulder that feels good you know so i mean the other three his kids, body it's like his body did what it needed to do to yeah deal with to, to to get all toxins. that toxins out yeah yeah so so it's, it's, so it's really it's really focused on it's a, there's a mind body soul connection totally we're all we energetic it's all energy mm-hmm. and it all flows and i i try to explain it with like it's a highway in my body and if there's a traffic jam somewhere could be anywhere you know, because everybody feels a different. The one person has a wrist and I had it in my back, but everybody gets attacked at different places. And sometimes you can even get eczema or something. I mean, you, you don't right. know what the heck is going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when you f- get rid of that traffic jam and your body flows again, then your body can heal itself. And that's what we're teaching now at the Tets Foundation. And I still find the same ways that I wanted to do the tennis camp was that I found, okay, if you do four hours of tennis and the other time you get to do fun, in my opinion, fun stuff, I should say tennis is fun too, but you know, after you've played enough. a good chunk of your life, it was work. It it was, was, yeah. You know, you had to be at a certain time. So Mm -hmm. now when Sean teaches, Sean is my husband is the main teacher and he will give the, the seminars for the people and I'm more the adventure director. So I will take him on the tubing and I will, uh, you know, take him to the lake and I'll take him on the mountain bikes and, and do the adventure part of it. And then I say, okay, Sean, you can teach now the serious stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a good mix. And, and having the farm, it's a 300 acre farm in, in Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains, close to Roanoke, close to uh, Virginia Tech. And, and, um, and being away from everything, kind of disconnect yourself. You get the families, you know, that they're, they're their iPhone doesn't always work because we're kind of out there in the farm. Right. And it's, it's just a great place to do this. You could really do it anywhere, but to, to, to get a family in that had some serious issues because it's not only now anymore athletes, it can people that have eating disorders or mm-hmm. evil people with cancer, all kinds of things. And uh, obviously we cannot say we can heal it, but we can definitely help them out and get them in the right direction too. Because when you hear that news, uh, the kid got the news of the surgery that he couldn't play tennis, he needed shoulder surgery. It's the same news if somebody says, hey, you have cancer or hey, you got this going on. Uh, your it's husband, a loss. It's a, it's a, it's loss. a loss. And it's, it's your body just goes in, in, uh, in, in a mode that, that if you don't release anything, what's really hard but you know yeah. it's possible it definitely um it can 
get all kinds of problems. And if you can release it, it definitely solves a lot of different problems. Yeah, for sure. So you, you have this farm in Virginia, so it's primarily retreats type, like a camp or a retreat. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, how it's been done. Yeah, it's been still a little bit, especially this COVID now, this this last we got a whole different type of kids now because we I I got also I helped a lot of kids with scholarships coming Mm -hmm. from Europe because in Europe, there's no tennis in, in school. So they'll call me up from Germany or Denmark or Holland, where I'm from, and they're saying, hey, I'm not good enough to be, be a professional tennis player, but I love to keep going with my tennis career. Can you help me getting into a school in America? So I helped a bunch of these kids out. And then when COVID started, so at first it was really for families and, and we, we, we wanted one of the parents to be there because if you have a child of like 10, 11 or 12 or younger, and they come home and they're excited. We learned all these things. But if a family member is not on one line with that child, it's very hard for the child to explain what they just learned over the last right. week or two weeks. So we said the child can stay as long as they want. We have enough place for that. But it would be nice if one of the parents, both parents is wonderful, but at least one of the parents can be there three, four, five days. So that's what we did last year. Now, this summer, I got all these phone calls from a kid from Denmark, a kid from Switzerland, a kid from you know Canada, and they're like, "We cannot go back home. We're kind of stuck, and we come to the camp." So mm-hmm. we had all this this students that some of them were just graduating and were kind of like in transition mode, and were like, "What what are we gonna do now?" Now, obviously, I can give them advice of that. Like you know, I was a couple times in transition mode, so uh, we helped some of the the athletes with that. That. And even we got a football athlete or a football player and he just graduated and he said, I played football since I was eight years old. I don't know any better than football. Now I got to get a real job. You know, my football career is literally over. Like he cannot play it for fun. It was really sad actually, because with tennis, like you said, do you still play? And I play all the time because I went, now I'm in Florida. So we have the, the farm in Virginia and we're there about seven months a year when we're running it. So I joke around when the grass starts growing, we go because then we have to mow the 300 you don't acres want to to mow the lawn. <laughs> exactly so we're on this this vehicles and we're mowing um and all everything starts going right so we're there but then when i come to west palm beach or north palm beach where i'm now then when i'm playing with the people to raise money and definitely it's been hard lately because you know people are saying we're giving money to food banks and this and that and everybody mm. is just a lot of my friends losing their jobs and or losing their business because they're doing corporate stuff. And, um, you know, so it's, so it's been tough raising money in this time because there's so many people that need it more than maybe, in my opinion, families need it and they need to be educated, especially now on their immune system. Because mm-hmm. for the COVID, I mean, if your immune system is strong, you can obviously handle more. You're better. Yeah, um, yeah better precision for this. And, and there's just, there's so much trauma. Yeah. In the- This year is we're all in this state of trauma that we don't, many people don't fully understand because it's not an obvious trauma, like losing a parent. Right. Um, And so I see it with my boys. Yeah. I see it with my boys. Um, The young one, not so much, but the 11 year old really likes his friends. He likes to go to his, his fam, the other families, other farms. And he likes to play baseball and now everything was canceled and he was just going crazy, you know, literally yeah. just like, 
I hate the world, you know? Yeah. And, we had, and then the youngest one, he was happy milking the cow and running around with the pigs. and the, So he's different and he had less trauma from this whole thing, yeah. but we're all different and we're all taking this this thing really hard sometimes. Yeah. Ha, have you found that the, that the techniques that you, you utilize in your foundation and how you help people um, work through emotional release to integrate with physical capability have you found that to be helpful during this time yes for yourself and your family? Very, very much so very much so um to the point actually that my husband and me we were going to write this book and it was called the connected athlete and then with all these things going on he actually started with the book called the connected servant because there were so many people serving our country different yeah. ways you know nurses doctors just going yeah. full tilt full day and so he he came out with this book was going to be probably the last book coming out and he just wrote this it is the connected servant i'll send you a copy oh and, that would be wonderful yeah. thank you so, I, and it's it's so important because i think people are missing that they're living in their stress they're right. living in their anxiety and they're probably seeing physical response to that yeah. that they don't understand. And it's all these and, people that helping with all this trauma, like firefighters mm-hmm. and nurses yeah, and first everybody. Responders. Yeah, and they forget yeah. about themselves sometimes that they're taking. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to you. Uh, you said you still play tennis regularly, right? Yes, yes. To to yeah. play with all different people. Normally, I play a lot more exhibition events, but that's obviously a little bit uh, on hold now. And, uh, but, but I still play with a lot of people and mainly to raise money for the foundation, you know, to let them know what I'm doing. And the easiest way to let them know is to play tennis with some of these people. Right. To to be out there in public. And yeah. And then to stay fit. And, you know, because I know that you ask that sometimes after 40, you know, can you still, and having my boys, I, I rollerblade a lot with them and just running after them is probably harder than any sport I've ever did. <laughs> right. How old are they again? How old are they? Nine and 11. Oh my goodness. So yeah, they keep you running. They yeah. keep you, yeah. they keep you moving. So, um, what do you find? So you're 49. Um, and you're, you you know, you've, you've learned some really great skills on how to keep yourself physically healthy through, you know, mental and emotional healing. So, um, with that in mind, what do you find is the, the hardest part for you as someone who is in your late forties, still living a very active life? Right. Um, I think sometimes, and I'm getting better in that now with my boys in the beginning, you constantly living for them for a while. I, I joke around with my husband because we learned that it was so important to breastfeed. So when I had Brendan, I breastfed him for two and a half years. It almost feels like uh, growing ups, you know, when the lady says 48 yeah. months. You know? And because we heard it was so important, so healthy for the child to have that experience. So when you're pregnant for nine months, then you breastfeed for two and a half years. Then literally I quit because Damien was coming the next one. So you're pregnant again for nine months. So literally five years of your life, you either have a big belly or you're breastfeeding. Right. And like your body is dedicated. Body is hundred percent. Yeah. So, and if you work out too much, you don't have the milk. So you just have to lay low for a while. And, uh, and I think it was hard for me 
to to get back in my rhythm to you know to say gosh my stomach it's getting a little loose you know i'm used to have a six pack and now i mean the boy said no nah, you never had a six pack you know and it's just like gosh i got to do something to get that back but it's definitely harder because you're so for them but now they're getting to an age that they can go rollerblade with me or if they go to the scooter park i say here's a phone call me if something happens i can go for my I love to rollerblade. I'm not a big runner. And I think also after the two kids, it's not as easy to bounce it's, around. Right. It's lower, <laughs> it's lower impact. So I'm, a skater I'm, a, I'm a skater and a runner, but so I understand the difference. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's nice and it's all getting back better and it's just exercises and getting into that, you know, now they're more, they can do more stuff on their own. But I think the, that five years, those first five years, and then the time that, yeah, they can start to walk and you're, it's hands-on, you know, I didn't have yeah. like a babysitter or anything like that. I was just with them nonstop and, and they cannot do much yet. You know, you just, you just hope that they don't step in the canal or the pool. Or, right. So I think finally, I'm kind of getting my life back to tell you the truth. Like this last year, I've been working out more and uh, not, I've been playing tennis the whole time in clinics and exhibitions. And because of that fast arm, I can still look fairly decent. And, and also it's, it's almost a curse sometimes for Sean, because I don't have to work out. And I just said, Hey, Sean, can you clear my shoulder? It needs a little clearer, you know, and I just get out of the car and boom. So Sometimes he's, he's, he's still coming through for you. Oh yeah. Every day <laughs> coming through for you the whole time. I know. So, good, good so yeah, you've, you face some challenges and a lot of that's just around, you had kids later and yeah. now all of a sudden, you know, you're in your mid forties, late forties, trying to get back into it. And you're like, Oh wow. Things feel different now. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's nice now that I kind of feel like, Oh, you know, I'm getting my, form back and and getting my life back because for a while you're just like is this ever gonna stop do i have time to look at my facebook page you know right, goes, mom right. mom mom you know oh my goodness so, so another question i like to ask and it, it's probably gonna be an interesting perspective from you being having such a high level background and now getting back into it in your late 40s after having kids but do you find there's any unique advantages that you have being 49 and getting back out there um yeah for sure someone younger doesn't have yeah I, I think also the, the smarter you work out you know you don't have to kill yourself I mean if you do certain things you, you definitely and and the workouts have come such a long way like I said when I came back I started doing cattle belts and and club belts and ropes and those things were not existing when I was 25 26 I, I definitely think when I came back at 36, I was in much better shape because of all the knowledge that we had, how to eat, how to work out. I mean, it was so much better than when I first, when I was top 10 in the world. I mean, I, I think I yeah. was in much better shape when I came back. Um, so, so that's an advantage. You just learn more. You, you have way more knowledge. Now, it is sometimes hard to put all that knowledge, uh, you know, right there where it needs to be. But, but definitely that, that helps the knowledge that you have, you can definitely work out smarter and, um, yeah. Yeah. Better knowledge, better tools, yeah. uh, better, better recovery. It sounds like the fact yes. that 
with a with a clearing and, and yeah and then like you said with, you didn't you didn't know that was even a thing back then so you certainly weren't doing it no and then apple cider vinegar and all those things we didn't know that when we were you know <laughs> how to get the inflammation out of your body with turmeric right. and bromelain and and whenever yeah. something does hurt and you do something that you just know okay i did something wrong you know i get a handful of uh natural anti-inflammatories and mm -hmm. it's just it's it's amazing you know that we have that and it's like i said yeah. it's like bromelain turmeric vitamin c cyflament and normally seems to do the trick yeah so we don't have to take ibuprofen all the time no like. no yeah but i mean <laughs> i remember it's andre agassi or something i mean if he didn't pop like five six uh, advils before his match he said i can't move you know right so how bad is that for your liver and everything else so we're very fortunate to know what we know now for sure. Yeah. And it's probably playing a pretty big role in you being able to be active, play at a high level for you where you're at now and where you want to be right. um, at this stage in your life and be able to bounce back after having two kids yeah. um, is, is these natural healing techniques that right. you have and these natural remedies for inflammation. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. And it's just something that people didn't think about or at all in the 90s no like, no it's it, it was getting there slowly if i talk to people that way before me they were just having coca-cola and the changeover you know and they're right? like we're wondering why we're cramping later or they were going yeah like, i just need of some caffeine and some sugar and i'm getting back out there right there's this one guy chris everett's ex-husband john lloyd he was telling this funny story because he's english and he was like yeah after wimbledon quarters i had this five sets match like you play for like four hours five hours and he said i went in the jacuzzi and i start cramping all over because now you go have an ice bath mm -hmm. but you know yeah. you just know like okay so yeah you don't you just don't know until you figure it out you know yeah, with so as with anything it's it's an evolving practice over time recovery yeah. is an evolving practice and it changes you know do you ice an injury do you heat an injury like yeah it changes over time oh i know, know. it's so uh, and everybody Emerging has a different research. opinion yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so um if you could leave us because we're about to wrap up if you could leave us with one parting piece of wisdom what would that be Oh, one. I know it's a tough question. I know you probably have a lot. You, you, you. Now, the one thing is that it is a whole thing. So my one advice is to not just go to a chiropractor, to not just do an acupuncture, to not just eat right, to think of when they say holistic, they really mean it's a whole puzzle. It's, it's not just one piece of the puzzle that's going to fix your problem. So that's what I had to learn. I think that, that I did a lot of things right, but there was still one piece missing. And, yeah. and I think it's really important that you got that whole puzzle together. And um, if you want more information on that, you can reach me on that uh, Ted's well, Foundation site. <laughs> well, tell, uh, please share that. So how can people find out more about Ted's Foundation and more about you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's easy. The, the name Ted's Foundation, it's also the name of our organization. So it's uh, www.tedsfoundation.org. And Ted's is T-E-D-S. So from you, think, eat, do, serve yourself and others. And we found like all those things work together. Like I said, First, I learned how to think better, probably with, right. with Napoleon Hill and then, you know, be mm -hmm. more positive. Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins. Yeah. And then I had to work out a certain way. 
and then that didn't work and then i had to figure out the emotional stress uh, that your body also picks up on and i think everything together made made yeah. uh, made it a better place so yeah just don't get caught up with one thing i guess yeah and i like that service is a part of it too so yeah you know, we like to be of service the- and helping others yeah, because it's, with that knowledge, it would be great if that person learned something at the camp or I learned something, you know, I help people get scholarships because I was in that position to help them out. And yeah. now there's certain families that have the money to come to the camp. There's no problem. But other families, they have three kids, whatever, they have a job. They cannot just come. So that's why we raise the money. And then yeah. what we also teach the people, because it's very hard to live a, a healthy lifestyle these days. So you know, eating out is obviously very expensive. So we teach them how to cook meals that are healthy, but quick and easy to, you know, maybe store. Um, And then also where to shop because they joke around, you know, whole foods, whole paycheck. It's, it's expensive Mm -hmm. sometimes. So I go to, we go to Costco, we order online and we really start shopping the best deals because eating organic is, is, it's, it is expensive, but if people would see, that if they had to pay for their medications and for their hip surgery and for their hip replacements, you know, if they saw, okay, that's $50,000 for a hip replacement. Now, suddenly your organic food is not that expensive. But if you see only, you know, the food that you eat and it's so expensive and you're like, but you're getting your hip surgery or whatever, you're getting that paid for by the insurance, then you're like, okay, that doesn't really. So I, I sometimes think that, if we keep getting those things paid for, um, people are still going to think of healthy food or good food that it's going to be very expensive. But if for right. some reason they had to pay for the medicine, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's when they can't view where the money is going and they just, all they know is they're spending money on food and it's, and and it seems expensive. And, and, and the same applies to, you know, investing in your fitness, investing in your health in any sort of way. Right. Uh, there, there is a general reluctance to do it, but if you don't, what happens? Right. You end up yeah. getting the medication. You end up getting the surgery. You end up right. having to treat these things artificially. Exactly. Um, exactly. So if you can get ahead of it, it's super helpful, but we have to get over people's blocks around right. investing in the good food. Cause unfortunately that is often more expensive yeah. uh, than going to McDonald's. But, yeah. No, I, <laughs> but, you know, even my boys would say sometime like, wow, why is that acai bullshit? That, that's why we're making it at home. You know, I can make yeah. it at home for $2. And there, are ways, and there are ways around it. There are ways around spending that money and you're teaching people that. So yeah. that's really helpful. Well, I yeah. love what you're doing. I love how, I love how you evolved into this over your career that, you know, first it started with the, with the, with the mental game and then, and then realizing what playing through grief did for you physically um like you you picked up these things along the way yeah and then turned it into a practice yeah and it's and it's different um and it's not everybody's on top of that but it's huge like I think it's it's a game changer for those who can implement it and you've seen it for yourself like you're still rocking it you're still kicking kicking butt at at almost 50 after a professional career after a, a devastating injury like Thank you. You're still doing it. And it's all because of these practices. So yeah. thank you for sharing that with us. Thank today. you. Thank you for having me and getting that story out. And, yeah. you know, we, we had another, 
um, we, we ran for the foundation to raise some money. We were trying to do a, we did a crisis event with all these top athletes, but also top uh, people for banks and this and that. And pretty much what everybody had in common is that if somebody would say, like a doctor, like, okay, your back is over, you'll never play tennis again. They all in their own way would say that answer is not good enough for me. Not acceptable. Not acceptable. It is no longer acceptable. Yeah. So that's what they all, all the successful people kind of had that in common. What I saw that they would just keep fighting, keep saying, no, no, there's something better out there. There's something. So if you say that one thing, maybe that's also it, you know, don't, when somebody tells you, you know, oh, you never get to walk or you never do this or you never don't listen to them. There is find yeah. another answer. There is another answer. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why people who are highly successful are highly successful. If yeah. people, if they accepted no for an answer, exactly. they'd be done. Yeah. Like that's, if they accepted rejection right away, they'd be done. And so you have to, you have to, because all this, all the success it's, stories, you know, from from uh, Sylvester Stallone that he kept mm-hmm. that your accent is wrong, your lip is wrong, you don't look right, and he kept right. going, right? That one you interview keep going. with Anthony you keep Robbins. pushing through, and you you do not accept that, and yeah. that's how you get successful. So that's so you see that in successful people, but you've got to spread that message to everybody because we all need to hear it. Yeah, is that you know when someone tells you you can't. You just keep fighting, keep going, keep fighting. Well, thank you, Brenda, for sharing your story um, and all the amazing lessons that you've learned that you are now sharing uh, with other people in service, putting the S in Ted's you are in service to others. So thank you so much for sharing that here. And hopefully you help somebody else who's listening, not accept no. Um, (laughs) I know. And understand how everything is, everything is connected within us. Exactly. Uh, So the more you understand that, the more you, more successful you can be in whatever you're trying to achieve in this world. So thank you for sharing and thank you for being on the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. Thank you, Ron. Well said. Listen, working from home can be hard and working out from home can be even harder. Figuring out when you can fit a workout in, what workout you should do, how often to work out, it can all be so stressful. And that's if you even have the motivation to exercise in the first place. That's why I put together the five must-do things to rock your at-home fitness and get the results you want, which you can download for free at robinleggett.com guide. This guide will walk you through some simple action steps you can take to amp up your motivation and easily fit home-based workouts into your daily life. In turn, you will boost your energy, feel better than you have in a long time, and get back to crushing your goals. You can download the five must-do things to rock your at-home fitness and get the results you want for free at robinleggett.com slash guide.